And uh, welcome, everybody. My name is Andrew. I'm the campus pastor here at the Leewood campus. So it's great to be here with you on this beautiful Sunday. And uh, as I think Reed said earlier, uh, if you've been around for the last few weeks or months, you know we have been in the book of Matthew. And really, we've talked a lot about reasons to trust and believe in, in Jesus. And in, in many ways, that's the purpose of Matthew's book, is to give faith to those <coughs> who read. He also, because that's his aim, he also helps uh, <coughs> excuse me, respond to objections that his reader may have. If, if you pay attention, uh, Matthew's often putting things in there to respond to a possible question or objection you might have as you consider Jesus. So, for example, you know, there's this implied question that his readers had. If, if Jesus is the Messiah, wouldn't he fulfill Old Testament prophecy? And that's why you see throughout Matthew, he's always pointing back to the Old Testament. He's constantly quoting the Old Testament to show, yes, indeed, Jesus does do that. Another question, if Jesus is the Messiah, uh, why are his own people rejecting him so much? And, and then Jesus gives the parable of the sower, uh, of the seed, of the soils, different soils, different responses to him, uh, because Jesus predicted there would be these different ways we could all respond to him. So this morning, why do I tell you all that? Well, t- today, Jesus responds to, in, in his own way, perhaps the most difficult objection to faith around. No kidding. I, I think this is the one. Uh, this is the one that most non-Christians I know, this is their struggle. This is their question. This is their objection. This is the one that every believer at one point or another in the darkest moments will ask herself, will ask ourselves, this is the one. This is the one. When someone you love gets sick unexpectedly, when the, when the baby you've been waiting for your whole life is born with spinal bifida, when you get that phone call at 2 a.m. and you realize someone's not yet at home, when the depression, when the mental illness that you've prayed about and prayed about and prayed about just doesn't go away, when you turn on the news and you see the homicide rate in your city growing yet again, when these things happen, you begin to wonder, even if you're a believer, even if you've been a believer for 20 years, you begin to ask, even just to yourself, if Jesus' kingdom, if Jesus' reign, if Jesus' power, if Jesus is so good, why is everything around me still so bad? If the kingdom is as amazing as Jesus says that it is, why is life in this kingdom so uninspiring sometimes? Jesus, if you are who you say you are, and you can do what you say you can do, and this kingdom you keep talking about is all that it's cracked up to be, why am I still so disappointed? Be honest. It's a safe space. It's okay. Have you ever in your heart of hearts at times been just a little disappointed in Jesus. Wasn't it supposed to be better than this? Wasn't it supposed to be victorious and glorious and emotionally gratifying this life I'm invited to? Did, did we do something wrong? Or is this really what it is? And maybe you're here and you aren't a believer or you're thinking about uh, walking away and you're like, amen, I get that. If you've ever found yourself struggling with disappointment in this whole Jesus thing, you would not be the first. The Jews of Jesus' day that were listening to him had a very difficult time wrapping their minds around him. They were amazed by his teaching. They were wowed by his authority and his incredible miracles he could perform. But when he talked about the kingdom, when he talked about the reign and power of God made manifest, 
manifest in Him and Him alone, people got confused. And then they got disappointed. If, you've, if you were today to walk up to a first century Jew and, and ask him or her, what, what do you think is the kingdom of God or what is the kingdom of heaven? They probably would have responded to you, it's when God comes back through His chosen servant, through His Messiah, and wipes out all of Israel's enemies, which at the time was Rome, and makes Israel the most powerful nation on earth. It's when God reestablishes His reign on earth. That's the kingdom of God. And so you've got to understand their disappointment with Jesus, because here's this guy who can do pretty much anything he wants to do. He can cast out demons. He can heal the sick. He can cleanse lepers. He teaches with an authority and a clarity and a power that not even Moses had. And yet he goes around loving the Romans, welcoming tax collectors, loving the oppressors of Israel. He runs away from conflict. Literally, he runs away And even when people try to get this thing moving, they try to make him their king and they rally around him, he rebukes them for it. He says, don't do that, stop it. And the crowds around Jesus, though he's very popular still at this time, they've got to be thinking, Jesus, come on. Let's get this kingdom thing going. Let's go. They're disappointed in Jesus. And not terribly unlike we often are. Why is Jesus' kingdom so disappointing? Why? Well, in chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus gives us several parables. We can't cover all of them, but He gives us several parables to show us why the kingdom seems so disappointing to us, but also why at the same time, despite all of that, why it's worth absolutely everything. If you haven't turned to Matthew 13 yet, you can do that now. So first, why does the kingdom seem so disappointing to us? And Jesus' answer begins in verse 24, which we heard read just a few minutes ago, where Jesus says, he begins, well, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who sows wheat on his farm. But before the farmer reaps the wheat, between the sowing and the reaping, this is the parable Jesus tells, he says an enemy sneaks in and sows bad seed. He sows weeds. And the weed in question here, it's, it's not totally clear, but it's probably Darnell, which is a farmer's absolute worst nightmare. Darnell uh, looked exactly like wheat all the way through its growth until you went to harvest it, and then you realized there was no head of grain in it. It was worthless. It was very difficult to discern from real wheat. So now, in this concrete illustration Jesus is giving of the kingdom, we have this situation where the wheat and the weeds are growing together. They're vying for resources. They're competing with each other. They're opposed to each other. And it's only when they are both growing up, kind of out of the ground, that the servants notice what's happened. And they run to the farmer and they say, look, there are weeds here too. How did this happen? Did you not sow good seed in the field? And the farmer says, an enemy has done this. Now, that's not really the surprising part, the shocking part about this parable and the kingdom in general that Jesus is bringing is what comes next. So the servants offer to clear the field right away, which makes sense. Shall we go and and, and pull the weeds out? And the farmer, who Jesus later identifies as the son of man, Jesus says, I'm the farmer in this story. The farmer is asked, the servants, can we go get the weeds now? He says, no. No. Should, Should we deal with your enemy now? No. Should we remove the opposition from the work you're doing? No. 
Should we make life easier for the good seed that you have sown? No, not yet. So why are we often disappointed in Jesus' kingdom? Why were the Jews of his day disappointed? Because his kingdom is mixed. It's mixed. It is between the sowing and the reaping, between Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and the end of time, a mixed bag. It is a farm with good at work and evil at work, with allies and enemies, with joy and pain, with wheat and weeds. It's mixed. And when many of us come to Jesus, right, we do it because we want protection. We want security. It's because there's something threatening us. There's a marital breakdown. There's a financial crisis. There's an addiction we can't control. There's a moral failure that threatens everything. And we come to Jesus because of the weeds, don't we? Don't we? Some of them are self-inflicted. Some of them are not. But we, no matter what, we look at Jesus and we say, Jesus, can you go and gather up the weeds in my life? And he says to us, not yet. For now, the wheat and the weeds, they will grow together. When I'm ready to take care of it, you'll know. And it's like, ugh, right? (laughs) So as Christian people, or as people considering the faith, we've got to come to grips with a life that is full of opposition. We've got to expect opposition in our lives. That's what this parable is teaching us. There's an enemy at work in the midst of Jesus' kingdom right now, and Jesus will allow it. There's an enemy of your life. There's a person, there's a very powerful person with very powerful weapons like death and pride and greed and violence who is absolutely hell-bent on choking the life out of you. He is opposed to you. When things are hard or painful, remember, you've got an enemy And there are weeds all around you all the time. They threaten to destroy you. Broken relationships, abuse, cancer, death, loss, pain. There are things in your life and in the world right now that we wish more than anything that Jesus would pull up out of the ground. But instead he says, no, let them grow together. And we've got to remember that when bad things happen, when we're in pain, when we're disappointed, we've got to remember that what Jesus is doing in the world is a lot like a farm with wheat and weeds. And he has his reasons for letting them grow together. We won't always know what those are. Sometimes we will. Most of the time we won't. So be prepared for opposition because the kingdom is mixed. But that's not the only reason we get confused and even disappointed by this kingdom. Look at verse 31. He tells another parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds. But when it's grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed that is so insignificant that many will hardly even notice that it's there. The kingdom can appear uninspiring because it's small. The kingdom is small. But someday, says Jesus, it will grow into a tree so large that birds could actually roost in it, but not yet, not now. Now, to be fair, this is the one parable or one of the parables that you can prove objectively true that Jesus gives. He's saying this parable about his own influence and ministry. He's saying, what I'm bringing is like a mustard seed. It's like a small seed that you would... would you would never believe grows to be the most influential and important religion on the face of the planet, which is exactly what ends up happening. 
12 dudes and some other people go around and, and they, with this kingdom message and they change the world. That, that happened. But this parable does not just describe the rise of Christianity across the globe. It also describes the way Jesus' kingdom will tend to work in your life today. It's small, it's unnoticeable, it's seemingly insignificant seed that will not blow you away anytime soon. And that's not really what we want from a Messiah, is it? We want results and progress reports and measurables. We want lines that go up and we want, we want to always be in the black, but that is not what Jesus is offering you. We want a kingdom that's like outpatient surgery, right? <laughs> There's something wrong, just fix it and we'll all move on. Just take care of it. Jesus says the kingdom is not like surgery, it's like a seed that will slowly, 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 incrementally change the world and change your life. So we should expect slow progress. Progress, but slow. We should expect things to take a long time. We should expect some of our prayers to seem unanswered for a while. We should expect times in our lives where it feels like Jesus is losing the battle, that the seed isn't growing. When it feels like things are stalled, there's progress, but it will be slow, sometimes painfully slow. But it also means, and I want you to hear this, it also means that no matter how small or insignificant what God is doing may seem, it is growing. It's working. When you're in the middle of raising your kids, okay, you can tell where I'm at right now. When you're in the middle of raising your kids and you, you just, is this ever going to get easier? Is anything I'm doing sticking? Kids, I know you're here and you feel the same way about your parents. I get it. <laughs> When you're in the middle of it, you're in the thick of it, God, is anything happening right now? When you're sharing your faith with someone, maybe it's a friend, a, a sibling, a spouse, a coworker, and it just, it's going nowhere. They're not interested. For years and years and years, when Christians have fought against injustices in the world, and it still feels like <laughs> we haven't made that much progress. This seed was growing. Even when the church was corrupt and could hardly even be recognized as Jesus' people, somewhere beneath the politics and the power struggle and the greed and the corruption, the seed was growing. And even now, despite everything you see on the news and the incredible evil that really does exist in our world, the seed is growing. So keep cultivating, keep working. It's growing but it starts small. And we haven't arrived yet. We're not done. It's still in many, many ways, even in our lives today, it's like a mustard seed. The kingdom's mixed and it's small. That's disappointing. But it actually gets worse uh, if you look at verse 47. Um, <laughs> uh, there Jesus says one more, he says one more hard thing about the kingdom. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and they sat down and they sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there are a lot of kinds of fish in the Sea of Galilee 
So any fisherman who heard this parable, they would understand that immediately. Fishermen would, would often take a single net between two boats and drag it in the Sea of Galilee until it felt good and heavy. They would drag it onto shore. Some of the fish in the net were still alive. Some were already dead. Some were ceremonially unclean. They were not fit for a Jew to eat. Some were uh, rotten. Some were perfect for selling. So the fishermen would have to sit down and sort the good from the bad, the edible from the inedible, the marketable from the no one is going to buy that. And, And Jesus says the kingdom is like that. It's like a net that's coming for you, whether you want it or not. Every fish and every kind of fish is going to get caught in this net. And at the end of time, someone's going to decide what kind of fish you are. The kingdom, in other words, isn't for everyone. The kingdom isn't for everyone. And here in the West, this is just about the worst thing I think you can say about any religion or, or Jesus' kingdom specifically. No one likes to hear There's a judgment coming. There's a separation coming. That that's what Jesus is going to do. He's separating people. We want a kingdom that's for everybody. It's all inclusive. But Jesus points out here, and you see it all over the Gospels. You'll see it all over the New Testament. This consistent theme that the kingdom is only for those who want it. Who choose it. And no one can make that choice for you. So we've got to expect the judgment to come. We've got to live Like what we do matters, who we follow matters, what we love matters, what we say matters, who we trust. We've got to know that we cannot mess around with Jesus. Everything depends on our response to him, whether we like that or not. And if if you're here and that's frustrating for you to hear, I get it, stick with me, because here's the irony. The irony is that the good fish, when when Jesus talks about the good fish here, the ones who are worthy of his kingdom, those are the people who are so aware of their unworthiness that they cry out to God for help. That's the kingdom fish. Look at Jesus' ministry. Look who he hangs out with. It's not religious people. It's people who know that they don't measure up. They know I have no chance with God if he does not have mercy on me. Those are the people. When Jesus says, I've come for the sick, not the healthy, that's what he means. The people most ready for Jesus' kingdom are the ones who know deep down they are, a, they are a bad fish in a net. But if you think about that, what that means is that entering Jesus' kingdom, loving his kingdom, choosing his kingdom is primarily an exercise in admitting how terrible you are. And nobody likes that. Even Christians don't like that. We're all prepared, you know, if you're a Christian here, you're probably prepared to say, I'm... I'm broken, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. But when someone actually points out something you've done wrong, your spouse, your child, your friend, hey, you did this wrong, what's your response? I didn't do anything wrong. That's your fault. That's his fault. That's her fault, right? We immediately start justifying ourselves. See, we can say that we're blue in the, fla- that we're blue in the face, Without Jesus, I can't survive the judgment. But then we, some of, we turn around and we live like we can perfectly survive the judgment without Jesus. We don't need him. That's why we've got to live in expectation. The judgment's coming. That's not the kingdom Jesus offers. The humble get in. That's the deal. This kingdom isn't for everyone. It's mixed. It's rife with opposition and hardship. And it's slow. And it's hard to see. 
Sometimes it's hard to believe God is doing anything at all in the midst of this. That's the kingdom Jesus has come to offer you. That's why when we're really honest with ourselves, we're sometimes disappointed. But Jesus isn't done. He's not done. He's basically saying here, he's saying, I'm giving you these parables because I know this is not what you were expecting. This is probably not what you wanted. But this kingdom I'm bringing is worth your disappointment. In fact, it's worth absolutely everything you've got. So yes, the kingdom seems disappointing at times. I I admit it. If that hasn't happened for you yet, stick around for a while and it will. It will. But why is it worth everything? Well, Jesus gives two more pictures. He says in verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus says the kingdom when you really get what it is, it's like finding the one thing you've been looking for your whole life. I know you're not a collector of pearls, probably, but imagine that you are, okay? That's your job. Your whole life, you're looking for this. You're looking for that perfect one. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is that one. And you will give up everything else. You will give up all the pearls and the jewels and the diamonds you've collected over a lifetime to get that one. It's the one thing that if you have it, you don't need anything else. It's the ultimate prize. You think about it, like the guy in the parable, he has no money for food, he has no money for housing, he has no money for anything. He spends it all on this pearl, and that's it. And that's all that he wants, it's all that he needs. It's beauty, it's worth, it's, it's enough. And Jesus, is, that's his point. If you get this thing right, nothing else matters he doesn't stop. He says the kingdom is also like a treasure hidden in a field. Now, your backyard in the ancient world, that was your bank. You hid valuable things there. You would bury it, and then you would forget about it, and you would die, and someone else would find it. It was not uncommon. The kingdom is like treasure hidden in a field. When you find it, Jesus says, he says, in your joy, You sell everything you've got to get that land, and then the treasure is yours. Now here, Jesus' point is not so much that it will cost you everything to get this kingdom. It will cost you everything. That's not his point, though. His point is that when you grasp it, when you understand what it is that Jesus is offering to you in his kingdom, you will joyfully and willingly give up everything else you've got to get it. In other words, if the kingdom is only ever disappointing to you, if Jesus is only ever disappointing to you, if you're listening to him now, you're reading this book, and you're here and you're thinking, I wouldn't give up anything for him or his kingdom. It's not because the kingdom isn't worth it. It's because you don't understand it. You haven't seen it for what it is. This is going to sound harsh, but but I I don't mean to be. You're, You're the bad pearl merchant who doesn't understand what he's looking at. Remember that story of the woman who sold, she sold an old painting in her attic for like $50 and it was a, turned out to be like an original Rembrandt, okay? Jesus is saying, if you walk away from my kingdom, that's you. You don't, you haven't seen it. Now you can push back here and you can say, Jesus, how can you say that? You've already acknowledged the kingdom is not all that we wanted or expected. It's mixed, it's slow, it's exclusive. We don't want that. How can it be a pearl? How can this be a treasure? 
And the Jew in Jesus' day, they're wondering the same thing. How can this be what we want? How is this worth the opposition and the hardship and the pain and the rejection and all the things that will happen to us if we follow you? How is this worth it? And Jesus will basically say back to them and to us, you're disappointed in my kingdom, not because you want more than I have to offer, but much less. You have absolutely no idea how radical and comprehensive my kingdom is and how deep and pervasive and deadly the problems of this world really are. You see, the Jews of his day, we talked about this a little bit, and it's true of us today. We think the problem in general is Rome. It's, the, it's politics. It's the presidential race. It's the policy decisions. It's the culture war. It's the economy. It's that religious freedom is under attack. Whatever it is that we think, Jesus, just fix that, and we're good. Just fix that. But the problem is so much deeper than that. There's an evil at the roots of reality itself. There is an evil in me and in you that we cannot control. There's a cancer that is eating out the guts of the entire universe. And it's like Jesus is saying, I know the kingdom's mixed and it's slow and it's controversial and not everyone will like it, but I am bringing a cosmic revolution that is so much bigger than you can even now imagine. You, Jesus, <laughs> I can just hear him. It's like you want a world where you can set up a business and not be taxed. I am bringing a world without poverty, without need, without hunger. That's what I'm bringing. I'm bringing a world without loneliness, without divorce, without family brokenness, without racial injustice. I'm bringing a world without cancer or sickness or death or loss or grief or pain or tears. That's what I'm bringing. And even if that's not enough for you to buy in, remember this, there's nothing here that Jesus is asking us to do in the parables that he himself has not done a hundredfold. He left everything behind, everything. He gave up the security and the safety and the glory of his heavenly home to become a killable, vulnerable human being. For the joy set before him, he sold everything he had for the treasure in the field. The only difference between him and us in this regard is that the treasure we get when we sell everything is the perfect, most powerful being ever. That's what we get. You know what his treasure was? Think about it. You know what he gave up everything for? You know what he left everything for? What was it? Whether you like him or not, you trust him or not, you choose him or not, his treasure was you. That's it. Is this kingdom slower than you want it to be? Sure. Is it harder than you thought? Yeah. Does it cost more than you originally were counting on? Yes. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Abs absolutely. Because when you find a kingdom like that, when you find a king like that, a treasure like this, you buy it. And if you aren't sure you've bought it yet, or if you're here and you know I've, I, you've never bought in, but you want to, say this simple prayer, Jesus, you're my Savior. I can only be accepted by what you've done on the cross for me. Nothing I've done. And Jesus, you're my king. I want your kingdom, not mine. That's it. The kingdom is that close to you right now. So that when Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is near, that's what he means. It's right in front of you. Pray to him. And then find someone here today and tell them what happened. Tell them you want to learn more about this Jesus. That's it. 
And I'll be honest with you, if that's you here this morning and you're thinking about this, I'm going to be straight up with you, okay? There's nothing this kingdom will not take from you. Nothing. It will take everything. But it's worth absolutely everything you've got. Let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us access to your kingdom in faith and repentance. Thank you for teaching us how radically different your reign is, how unexpected it is, and how, but how valuable and irreplaceable it is. Make these truths that we've learned from your word real to us today, this week. And give us, Father, a tremendous hope as we live between the sowing and the reaping. We pray these things in the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen.